0: Buddhist Geeks. Seriously Buddhist, Seriously Geeky. Episode 141, The Mechanisms of Kensho. This week, we continue our discussion with James Austin and branch out to explore the neuromechanisms of Kensho and Satori, as well as the difference between these deeper awakenings and the more minor absorptions or quickenings that sometimes precede them. This is part two of a two-part series. Buddhist Geeks is supported largely by the generosity of our listeners. If you like what we're doing, please consider making a one-time or monthly recurring donation by visiting BuddhistGeeks.com forward slash donate. So, taking those three things that you talked about first, Uh the two different kinds of attention... Then second, how meditation relates to both top-down and bottom-up attention. And then thirdly, the different ways of processing both self-centered processing and other-centered processing, or what you call egocentric and allocentric. I'm interested in getting into more specifically in the Zen tradition what's often described as Kensho or Satori, these kind of significant spiritual openings, and and how some of this stuff that we're talking about is related to that but first, I thought maybe it'd be good to just explore what's normally meant by Kensho and Satori for more of a traditional Zen perspective. That way we get clear about what's usually meant by it, and then we can get into to the ways that you understand it working.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, these two words uh, refer to both an earlier and then a later state of development on a long spiritual path and one usually needs to be on such a path for years before one drops into first kensho and then satori. I think most people regard kensho as the uh, initial or preliminary state of awakening and reserve the term satori for a later and more advanced states of awakening. But then what do we mean by awakening? I think one of the crucial elements in the state of awakening is the realization that there is no central self that is in charge of consciousness at that moment and that there is neither a sense of the physical self back in the center of awareness, nor any sense of an individual with a long history of uh, psychic concerns back in the center of awareness. Now, you might say, well, if there isn't any physical self uh, in the center of awareness during this, alternate state of consciousness and there isn't any psychic sense of awareness back in the center, then the individual must be unconscious. Not so. Basically, consciousness goes on very well, thank you, without any sense of the physical or the psychic sense of self back in the center. What kind of consciousness is capable in of being conscious of a single state uh, of consciousness. Well, by definition thus far, it needs to be an allocentric state of consciousness because there isn't any self-centered consciousness back in the center doing it. This is where the difference that we've outlined in terms of egocentric and allocentric processing become so crucial for meditators and for Zen meditators in particular because Zen traditionally concentrates on the nature of what it is back in the center that is conscious. It's throughout the long history of Zen The words self and selfless are very important. Zen doesn't pay very much attention to lists or to scholastic uh, concepts. It really concentrates on what you learn about consciousness as a result of engaging in attentive processing while you're on the mat or equally important, while you're out in the outside world. What you learn when you're on the cushion is that you're engaged in what one might call attentive processing. And the art of attention begins with really the important part of the order these words attentive processing let's back up and look at these two words first in order to get farther into into this topic okay attentive processing those two words place attention first attention is the vanguard function attention is the sharp point at the tip of our mental functioning that pinpoints the target object and holds it so that the rest of brain processing can get in there, adapt it and massage it and work with it and interpret it. And that makes attention, both top-down and bottom-up, very important for understanding what meditation is all about. Now, getting back to Kensho, and Satori. The thesis that we're talking about here puts bottom-up attention through the temporal parietal junction and the inferior frontal cortex, particularly on the right side, as very important preserved modes of attentiveness that help to point allocentric processing in the direction of perceiving the outside world as it really is. This is sort of the Zen definition of suchness. It also implies that there is at the same time an emptiness of self back in the center. At the same time that suchness, this sense of the inherent things are as they really are out in the outside world without you back in the center experiencing them. We're trying then to put in words a dual shift in consciousness that drops out the sense of the psyche and the somatic self back in the center and that at the same time, enables other referential allocentric processing to proceed in a liberated manner. So this is what I believe is sort of the essence of what the state of Kensho is, which is a state that one drops into. You can't get there by any willpower. You drop into it, And if you're fortunate and have had a long background in meditative uh, practices before then, such a state has transformative potentials in the sense that once you've lost that self-centered, I-me-mine, hyper-self-centered state, once you've lost that once and you see what that feels like, the relief that attends, getting rid of all of that limbic baggage. Uh, once you've had that experience, then you're, you have a rather different perspective on how important you are and are better prepared to value what's going on in the world outside your very own skin.
0: Does that help? Yeah, no, that's great. So it sounds like that's kind of both the description from the Zen perspective of, of Kensho and then also your hypothesis about what's actually going on in the brain, the mechanisms leading up to and then the actual event itself. And you say in your books that you present a lot of testable hypothesis, uh, hypotheses. Um, mm-hmm. I'm wondering, is this something that you think is testable?
1: People are putting a lot of uh, weight and emphasis nowadays on functional MRI imaging and on uh, simultaneous uh, electroencephalography or magnetoencephalography. If people who meditate are studied longitudinally by well-established and careful investigators, it should be possible, if suitable funding can arise, it should be possible to get a sufficient number of baseline observations on meditators over the years and then be poised, literally like physicians are poised in an emergency room ward to attend to emergency situations in their patients, it should be possible to have uh, the technologies poised to study a meditator who happens during, let's say, a meditative retreat to uh, undergo an episode of Kensho or satori, And with the suitable instrumentation and the suitable technology and the suitable experimental design and the suitable human researchers on hand, because Kensho has immediate residua that will last for many minutes, if not hours, it should be possible to define what changes have just taken place in that subject's brain. To do that, of course, you'd need to have a new baseline, let's say, at the start, of a, a one week retreat so that if during the retreat the meditator dropped into Kensho you should be Johnny on the spot able to tell whatever changes might have occurred in the brain in the interim. So I think this is feasible and I think sooner or later maybe not in this uh, decade which we're almost out of but in subsequent decades, I think it should be possible, theoretically, to determine more about the underpinnings of Kensho and Satori. It would be my thought that when this happy event occurs, the researchers will discover that the self-referential regions have dropped out of the picture to a substantial degree, and that bottom-up, allocentric, attentive processing will be more or less in the foreground. This is not, by the way, the impression that we have when we're usually conscious. We don't have that no-self perspective, What we do have is an entirely self-centered perspective that keeps us thoroughly convinced that we're in charge of uh, all of our perception. Uh, That's not the way the brain is, is set up to operate in its lower right side. That's one of the reasons why when Kensho does occur, it's so startling and so novel and so fresh and so unexpected because when allocentric perception is liberated and no self is around there to take credit for it, it's a very startling experience for the person who's undergoing that experience impersonally.
0: So the way I'm understanding it is that there are these kind of non-event events. There's no one there to observe or experience them because, like you're saying, allocentric processing has been liberated it's um,
1: basically not self-centered
0: gotcha and so given that it sounds like what you're describing is something of a, a temporary realization that has larger implications i'm wondering if you have any hypothesis for how the brain or the system of someone who's been meditating for a long time and who's undergone quite a few of these shifts would there be a long-term way in which their brain is kind of, for lack of a better word, rewiring itself or changing in some way?
1: It's not a very bad word that you're putting into a phrase, because the evidence, I think, is consistent with the fact that the brain is rewiring itself, the brain of a sage person, let's say certainly is pursuing impulses through rather different pathways and experiencing the world phenomenologically in a rather different way from how they started out many decades before. So rewiring, I think, is an apt phrase. Your question was, how does it come about that an advanced rare sage person does see the world differently and does respond differently. I think we have a few clues, uh, theoretically at least, and they're again based on some of the functional anatomy of the brain that has been um, on just in the last decade or so. An important way to look at this I think, is to take a look farther away from the cortex and drop down and see what things are like at the level of the thalamus. The thalamus is a paired structure in the center of the brain, and it's a way station, if you will, a gateway, if you will, through which all of our perception, with the exception of smell, must proceed on the way from our basic sensory uh, nerves up to the cortical level of the brain. So the thalamus as the gatekeeper and as the way station to our more sophisticated cortical processing exercises a crucial influence in consciousness and basically is organized in two major layers, which we'll call the dorsal tier, D-I-E-R, of thalamic nuclei, and the ventral tier of thalamic nuclei. Don't be afraid of these two words, dorsal and ventral, because as we've just explained earlier, There is the dorsal part of the uh, cortex as well as the ventral part of the cortex. And it turns out that the dorsal part of the thalamus interacts with the dorsal part of the uh, cortex and in ways that are very illuminating. Let's start with the back of the dorsal thalamus, uh, a very big nucleus called the dorsal pulvinar. It's our major association nucleus for much of what we hear and see and perceive in the back of our brain. What does it do? Well, here we are looking at this outside world with a blizzard of potential stimuli out there, and based on all of its associations with the cortex and on all the information it receives from lower down, the pulmonar assigns salience, that is, instant meaning, to a certain target that it detects in the stimulus array in the outside world. And that assignment of salience allows attention to focus on it and put that sensory target in the foreground of perception. And at the same time, it relegates all of the surrounding stuff out there that would be confused with that target into the background. So this is how you recognize a friend's face when you're out in a crowd. You pick it out automatically. It pops out at you. That's what the dorsal pulvinar helps you do. Well, right in front of the dorsal pulvinar is another dorsal nucleus called the lateral posterior nucleus. What does it do? It's nicely interconnected with uh, the superior parietal lobule. The superior parietal lobule is our major somatosensory association nucleus. It's responsible for putting together our senses of arms and legs and backs and heads and everything into a organized body schema. In other words, it's the cortical association center for our physical sense of self, our soma. Mm. Not surprisingly, the superior parietal lobule is right up there in the parietal lobe, which is in the center of the egocentric processing stream. So here's the anchor that helps us have the feeling that we're a physical experiencing object back in the center of all of our perceptions. So much for our somatic sense of self and its perceptions but even more important, because we are psychic beings, are the three nuclei in the dorsal part of the thalamus that lie in front of these two nuclei. Each of these is a limbic nucleus of the thalamus, so-called. What does that mean? A limbic nucleus of the thalamus funnels all of the information from our limbic system and processes it on its way and exports it up to the cortex. These three limbic nuclei of the thalamus are all there in the dorsal part of the thalamus, ready to export all of our fears and our limbic-oriented, over-conditioned histories up to the cortex to cause us untold suffering. Okay. So if the thalamus in its dorsal aspect has so much self going on and so much subjective self and suffering going on and exporting it up to the cortex, how do you get rid of all that? What does meditative practice do? What does Kensho or satori do? Part of the answer, I think, depends on how we interpret something called triggers we haven't used the word trigger thus far, Vince, but triggers are very important. Zen history puts a great stock on triggers. It turns out that a triggering stimulus is so effective that it can cause the dorsal thalamus to become deactivated. And when the dorsal thalamus is deactivated by the inhibitory nucleus that caps it, then the corresponding dorsal parts of the cortex are also deactivated. If you've been able to follow the, the foregoing description of what goes on in the parietal and frontal lobes in the dorsal part, you may recall that these are the part of our egocentric self-processing pathway. So what we're talking about here is an inhibition of the dorsal thalamus caused by an overlying inhibitory nucleus, the reticular nucleus, that is then manifest as a deactivation of the self-referential parts of the brain up in the cortex dorsal lake. This, I believe, is the explanation for why a trigger can be so important as a catalyst that successively sets in motion the sequence of changes that can deactivate the physiological core of our egocentric self. And spare, by the way, the ventral parts of the thalamus through which allocentric processing can still proceed through the lower parts of the temporal lobe and the lower parts of the frontal lobe.
0: Okay, very cool. Thank you. I appreciate that explanation. That's interesting.
1: It's complicated, but we are talking about the brain. Yeah. And there isn't anything simple about the brain normally, and therefore there isn't anything simple that's going to explain either Zen or the uh, alternate states of consciousness that can occur in Zen training.
0: Just to backtrack a little bit before we kind of wrap up the discussion, you and I were talking before the interview and discussing you know, some of the questions, and you mentioned that it'd be really important to make a distinction between what you'd call quickenings or absorptions and Kensho or Satori, that these are two different things, and it's important to make the distinction, especially for practitioners.
1: Yes, it is. When we're talking about Kensho and Centauri, we're really talking about uh, states of consciousness that are advanced and that generally require, at least on the meditative path, years of practice uh, for them to happen. Much more commonly experienced are lesser states of consciousness, little quickenings which may be hallucinatory, little states of elevated mood that may occur during retreats, little states of epiphanies where minor, insightful, or intuitive graspings of ideas come in. These are all very common on the meditative path, and, and many people experience one or another levels of these quickenings after they've been on a retreat or two or while they're while they're actually on the retreat. Often, however, the episodes of Kensho or Satori that we're talking about don't occur during the retreat, but they occur after the retreat. Meanwhile, to the uninitiated People all over, of course, are naturally interested in being awakened or enlightened. Meanwhile, there's a lot of confusion about uh, the lesser alternate states of consciousness, the quickenings or the absorptions. The internal absorption that I mentioned at the start of this interview, the one where Uh, vision and hearing dropped out and my physical sense of self dropped out. It's possible, I think, to interpret these as due to inhibitory effects of the reticular nucleus on certain nuclei in the lower back of the thalamus, not the dorsal part, but down in the much more ventral parts and more posterior parts of the thalamus, because there are two thalamic nuclei called the lateral geniculate, which is important for vision, and the medial geniculate, which is important for hearing. And just a little GABA-inspired inhibitory effects of the reticular nucleus can deactivate these two relay nuclei in the lower back of the thalamus, and temporarily disconnect visual processing and auditory hearing processing. Moreover, just in front of these is the ventral posterior lateral and medial nuclei of the thalamus. And uh, these nuclei on each side are responsible for sensations from one's body and one's head the thalamus is is set up to be able to block uh, sensory transmission in ways that are very relevant to the absorptions but these are preliminary and the absorptions don't have the potential for changing traits of consciousness and performance the absorptions do on the other hand inspire one's curiosity it certainly inspired mine to go further and to inquire what is going on during these meditative uh, changes so let's not downplay the absorptions and let's not downplay uh, the more concentrative modes of attention or meditation because these do help the amplitude of conscious awareness and the vividness of it and the sustainability of uh, attentive processing in ways that are very important. On the other hand, let's not minimize the importance also of the more receptive kinds of open awareness that one can practice when you're Off the mat, out of the cushion, in the outdoors, being on bird walking expeditions, keeping your eyes and ears wide open for the next bird that might happen to come along unexpectedly, and in particular for being out at night and looking up into the dark sky to see the rising of the moon, which was An important part of Zen cultural traditions uh, in the old days. And let's not overlook either the fact that 2,500 years ago or so, it was when Siddhartha looked up and saw the planet Venus as the morning star that the legends tell us that he was enlightened. So looking up may be one of the important ways that a trigger can catalyze states of consciousness.
0: Join us for the 4th Annual Buddhist Geeks Conference, hosted in partnership with Mindful Cyborgs and Shambhala Sun from October 16th through the 19th In beautiful Boulder, Colorado. This year's conference will be exploring the convergence of Buddhism with modern culture and technology through informative keynote presentations, idea-packed TED-style talks, self-organizing community dialogues, and contemplative workshops and practice periods. This year's list of presenters includes the world's most quantified man, Chris Dancy, Abbot of the Village Zendo in New York City, Roshi Pat Enkyo O'Hara and Pragmatic Dharma Provocateur Daniel Ingram, as well as many others. For more information and to register, visit BuddhistGeeks.com conference. After nearly a year in private beta, the Buddhist Geeks Network is now open for any independent practitioners who want to engage in interdependent practice.